The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. If you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. We continue our look this morning. It's what's commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son, beginning in verse uh, 11 and following on through verse 32. We began this last week and we uh, continue this morning and we'll wrap up our look at this uh, third of three short parables that Jesus told on this particular occasion recorded for us in Luke 15. And we'll finish it again. I said, or I meant, if I didn't already say it, next week. We'll look this morning mainly at verse 17 and following, but I'll read the whole thing for context. And he said, that's Jesus, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He arose, and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. We've seen this theme playing out in these three parables that Jesus tells on this occasion. These three stories all have the same theme in general. There's something that's lost, there's something that is then found, and there's a celebration that takes place when the lost thing is found. In the first story, it's a sheep that's lost, and a shepherd who goes and finds it in a celebration that ensues following that. The second story is a coin that's lost and a woman who searches until she finds it. Upon finding it, calls all her friends and neighbors and they celebrate the finding of the thing that was lost. And here, in this last more extended parable, it's not a sheep, it's not an animal, it's not a coin, it's not an item. 
It's a person. It's a son who's lost. And yet he's found. A son who was, as we're told, dead and is now alive. And it's cause for celebration. The whole point of all of these really is Jesus is communicating to the crowd that's listening, particularly to the religious leaders, the joy of God and the celebration that happens in heaven when his lost people, his lost children, his lost sinners are found. When people who are dead in their sin come to life through Christ, there's a celebration in heaven. God rejoices at the salvation of sinners. And he's having to tell stories, and he's having to tell it in very simple ways because he's looking in the eyes of religious leaders who absolutely do not get this, who in fact are grumbling and complaining and criticizing him for the fact that he's associating with lost sinners who are hearing the gospel and believing. Instead of rejoicing, they're complaining. Instead of celebrating, they're indignant and they're angry and they want no part of it. And so Jesus tells these stories really for two points, really to, to confront them in their sin and to show them how far they are from the heart of God. And on the other hand, to encourage any sinner who's in the crowd no matter how far you've gone, no matter what you've done, no matter how lost you find yourself, there's a God who will rejoice if you'll just come home. And so he tells these stories, and he tells this story in particular, moving from animals to inanimate objects to now adding a moral component with a human heart and a human will and a human attitudes and emotions, giving color to this, to this imagery a story that everyone could relate to, yet was shocking in all of its detail. A story about a lost boy who was found. Someone who had everything, had all the advantages, who had heard the truth growing up, and yet walked away from it all for a good little season of his life. Only to crash and burn and hit rock bottom and wake up and come home. It's not just a story in the Bible that's fictional. It's a story that's played out over and over and over and over and over again in the hearts of men and women all throughout the history of humanity. If you grew up in the 70s, 80s, even the 60s, really, you probably know who this person is in the picture that's going to pop up on your screen right now. If you were born in younger generations and you don't like classic shock rock, then you probably have no idea who that weird-looking dude is on the screen. Whether you know him or not, his name is Alice Cooper. That's not really his name. He was born in 1948. His actual name is Vincent Damon Fernier. Really different from Alice Cooper. If you were to read the Wikipedia page about Alice Cooper, it summarizes who he is by simply saying this, with a raspy voice and a stage show that features numerous props and stage illusions, including pyrotechnics, guillotines, electric chairs, fake blood, reptiles, baby dolls, and dueling swords, 
Cooper is considered by many music journalists and peers to be, quote, the godfather of shock rock. He's drawn equally from horror films, vaudeville, and garage rock to pioneer a theatrical brand of rock designed to shock audiences. That's Alice Cooper. You grew up like in shock rock when you were younger. You probably know who Alice Cooper was. There really wasn't a bigger name in that genre than him. He and Ozzy Osbourne, if you know him, were pretty much contemporaries and sort of running in the same sort of thing. What you may not know about Alice Cooper, though, is that his father was a pastor and his grandfather was a pastor. Not only that, but his wife's father was a minister as well. Vincent Fournier grew up hearing the gospel. He grew up going to church. He grew up hearing about Jesus and opening God's word and studying it and singing songs and praying with God's people like we've done this morning. He grew up in the shadow of Christianity. And yet as a young man, he, he walked away from it all. His love for music and his desire to get away from all of that took him on a road that was long and hard. A road that took him to the very top of fame and popular rock and roll. He lived really the successful life of a rock star. Hardly any rock star has been as successful as Alice Cooper. He had it all. He rose to the very top. He was rubbing shoulders with the likes of the Beatles and Elvis Presley and any other big name in rock and roll and even in Hollywood, frankly. They all knew Alice Cooper and he knew them. He partied with them all. He lived a life of utter rebellion against everything he had grown up being taught. Until one day, he crashed and he burned. I want you to hear just a one-minute clip of a very lengthy interview that Greg Lowry, Pastor Greg Lowry, did with him a couple of years ago. And I want you to just hear this little snippet of what he had to say in that particular interview, because it's so relevant to what we're looking at in God's Word today. Listen from his own lips. Cheryl had gone. She'd gone to Chicago and said... I can't watch this. But the cocaine was speaking a lot louder than her. Finally, I, I, I looked in the mirror, and it looked like my makeup, but it was blood coming down. I think I might have been hallucinating. I don't know. Flushed the rock down the toilet. I woke up, and I called her, and I said, it's done. And she goes, right. You know, she said, you have to prove it. One of the deals was we start going to church. So I knew who Christ was, Jesus Christ was. And I was denying him. I knew that there had to either come a point where I either accepted Christ and started living that life, or if I died in this, I was in a lot of trouble. And that's what really motivated me. I just got to a point of saying, I'm tired of this life. And I know that this is right. When the Lord opens your eyes and you suddenly realize who you are and who he is, oh, it's a whole different world. fascinating, isn't it? To hear someone like Alice Cooper say, I got tired of this life, and I knew that this wasn't where it was at. When the Lord opens your eyes, and you begin to see, oh, everything is different. Everything is different. 
There's so much more to that interview. I'll, I'll put a link to it when we post the sermon this week, and it's worth listening to his broader story and all that the Lord did in bringing him back. But Alice Cooper was this child of the church who walked away, and it crashed and burned, but he came back. He's one of those lost children who is found, one of those ones whom our Heavenly Father rejoices over, much like the young man in Luke chapter 15. We begin to look at this young man that Jesus tells a story about last week, and we begin to see in him the nature of sin. We see the young man who, who, who comes to his father and, and says to his father, I want my inheritance now. I, 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 I can't wait for you to die. You're not dying fast enough. I, I, I want out of here, and I want away from you, and I want away from this family, and I want away from everything that it represents. I want to do my own thing, my own way. Give me what's mine now, and I'm out of here. That was the message. And we saw in what he said uh, a real composite picture of what sin looks like. We, we explored this last week. We, we saw in, in what this boy says and what he does, all of the, these characteristics that give us a, a vivid color picture of sin. It, it's greed, it's rebellion, it's a lust for pleasure, it's a selfishness, it's an ingratitude, a, a discontentment, uh, an, an inordinate pride. It says, I know better. I know what I ought to do. All that matters is me. I want to live for myself and not for you. I want to do whatever I want to do. I'm not satisfied with what I have and what you've provided. I want more. And at the heart of it all is a, a hatred for his father, really. It's, it's a, a kid who looks at his dad with disdain and disgust and says, you know, at the end of the day, I don't want any part of you. I just want the money that you owe me. And he walks away. And we read that story with disgust, and yet in the heart of it, we see our own sin. That's what sin looks like in this boy. That's what sin looks like in you. And that's what it looks like in me. And we took a little further glance at not only what sin looks like, but how it operates. We, we see in this kid's life that sin does for him what it does for all of us. It comes into our lives and it promises us joy and it promises us fulfillment and it promises us pleasure. And we pursue all of those things in sin, thinking that's where the road is taking us, only to wake up one day and, and realize it's all a big lie. It's all a big illusion. Sin never provides all of those things. It promises those things, but what it actually provides is bondage and depression and emptiness and misery. And that is the testimony of this kid's life. He takes sin and he runs with it. He breaks free of everything that relates to his family and his father and his heritage. And he runs far away. And he hits the road and we're told he goes to a far country. He sells out all of his inheritance, takes the money, takes off, runs, goes to a far country, gets away from not only his family, but all of his people and his heritage. And he goes to the land where Gentiles live and he begins partying it up. He blows through every dollar that he has, partying it up. Prostitutes, sexual immorality, any pleasure he can pursue and he can purchase, he goes after with all of his heart. He lives it up. 
until the money runs out. And the money runs out and the party is over. All the friends that he thinks he has disappear. The lights go down, the music shuts off. And sadly for him, at the same time, a famine hits the land. And he's in need. Simply told, in need. This kid who'd been living in luxury, who'd been eating and drinking and living it up, all of a sudden finds himself utterly destitute. He hits rock bottom. We're told he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. A Jewish boy herding pigs, envious that the pigs have more food than he has. For a young Jewish boy, you can't get any lower than that. You can't get any more shameful than that. You can't get any further away from your life and heritage than that. And yet that's where he finds himself. He's hungry. He's alone. He's miserable. And that's where sin takes us every time. Even if, we, even if we pursue it and we don't lose everything like he did, you might just gain everything like Alice Cooper did and realize that in the gaining of it all, it's empty and it's hollow and it never provides. I read a story by, uh, an article, excuse me, that was uh, written by a Harvard business prof uh, professor who had done a study of wealthy people and what makes them tick and what actually how their wealth relates to fulfillment. And he did this study of millionaires of all different stripes, from people who just had a million dollars in their net worth to people who were multi-billionaires and all across the spectrum of wealth. And he said that my findings were this. When I surveyed people, it didn't matter if they had a billion dollars or if they had $10 billion. It didn't matter how much they had. When exploring what they thought it would take to finally make them feel fulfilled, no matter where they found themselves across the spectrum, the answer was almost always the same. They wanted and felt like they needed two to three times more than what they had to be fulfilled. Think about that. It's an illusion that you chase and you never, ever catch it. It's a moving goalpost that no matter how, how far you pursue it and how much you think you get it, the goalpost just keeps moving until you wake up one day and you realize it's an empty pursuit altogether that can never do for you what it promises. And that's what this boy finds out. Sin has taken him as low as it can go. He's at the bottom, at rock bottom. He's run hard, he's run fast. And all that's left him is empty and miserable and low, lonely and starving but we're told in the text that there at rock bottom, something really remarkable happens. Really, in fact, a miracle happens. Jesus gives it to us this way. He says he came to himself. There in the pig pen, envying the pig's food, he came to himself. There's a turning point that takes place. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, pain plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. Oh, that's a great quote. This boy is in pain. And he came to himself. What does he mean here? Well, his eyes are open to truth and to reality. He saw himself for who he really was. 
He saw his life for what it really was. He saw this whole journey that he's been on for this season of his life for what it really was. He saw the foolishness of all of his attitudes and all of his actions that had taken him to that place. The theological term we tend to use to describe this moment is the word regeneration. It's the Holy Spirit flips the light switch of his soul on from off. His eyes are opened. His heart changes. He's awakened from a stupor that sin has had him in. And he sees things for what they really are. You heard it in Alice Cooper's words, didn't you? You heard him when he's saying, I just got to the point of saying, I'm tired of this life, and I know that God is right. And when the Lord opens your eyes, you suddenly realize who you are and who he is. Oh, it's a whole different world. That's what happened to this boy. He came to himself. He remembers his father and he remembers his father's house. The father who he rejected. The father who he disrespected. The father who he rebelled against. The father who he's run away from. His mind begins to think about that man. The father whose resources he demanded and has subsequently squandered. That's all he can think about is his dad. And he has this internal monologue. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? And here I am perishing with hunger. He remembers that back home, the hired servants of his father have plenty of food. They're not even hungry. And he's starving to death. They're in far better shape than he is. This word uh, servants here is a word that describes day laborers. This is not like family servants, if you will, that are a part of the family. These are, these are like day laborers, people who are sort of temporary uh, help, people who roam about looking for enough work for that day and, and hopefully they can get hired on for a day to do some manual labor and take whatever wages they can get. They're the kind of people that were often taken advantage of in the culture. If you look back at Old Testament law, you'll see the Jewish law had some pretty clear laws for God's people that they were not to take advantage of such people. They were to pay them what they owed them at the end of the day and not hold their money till the next morning and leave them desperate. This was what he's talking about. He's saying, listen, even back at my father's house, the, the day laborers, those guys who hang around by the gate looking for work every day, even those people have enough bread, more than enough bread to eat. Here I am about to die. He begins to think about his father's home and he realizes that place wasn't that bad after all. So he decides to get up and go home get up and just go back. You have to capture the movement of, of how this plays out in this kid's life. He picks up everything and he leaves and he goes out into the world and he runs as far as he can, as hard as he can that way until he hits rock bottom. Then he comes to himself and he picks himself up and he turns around and comes back the way he came. The journey home, I'm quite sure, very different than the journey that took him away. He went away with money in his pocket and all the anticipation of what was to come. He's coming home in abject poverty, humbled, filled with regret. But this picture of him leaving and turning around and coming back is a word 
is a description of a theological word that we use, the word repentance. It's the word repentance that's being described here. It's the intentional turning away from self and from sin and from the world and returning to our Father. That's what repentance is. That's what this boy does. And it's meant to show you and I what it looks like for a rebel soul and a sinner to come back and to be saved. It's what God's called his people to for generations. If you go all the way back to Ezekiel chapter 30 or chapter 18 in your Bible, you can hear God pleading with his people through the prophet Ezekiel saying this, therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent, turn from all your transgression, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgression that you've committed. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. That's the key, right? Turn and live. That's what repentance is. That's what Israel needed to do in Ezekiel 18. And that's precisely the only hope that this young man had when he's at rock bottom was to turn and live. He repents. This is the message that Jesus consistently taught throughout his ministry. Back in Luke chapter 13, we heard him say in verse 3 these words to a particular crowd. No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise, what? Perish. You'll either repent or you'll perish. Sounds an awful lot like what God said to, to his people in Ezekiel 18, doesn't it? Turn and live. Don't turn, die. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Matthew says this about Jesus. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. They saw everything he did. They heard everything he had to say. And they said, no thanks, we'll stay right where we are. This is the message of the apostles in the early church, Acts chapter 3, verse 18. We hear the apostles preaching, and their message is this, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. If you want to know what to do in spite of, I mean, in light of the fact that you're sinners who rebelled against the Lord, what you do is repent and turn so that your sins can be forgiven. Acts chapter 17, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness. All people everywhere are called by God to repent, to turn from sin, to turn from self, to turn from a life of rebellion and to come back to their father. the day of judgment is coming when it'll be too late. Despite what some teachers and some preachers will tell you in our culture today, there is no way to be saved apart from repentance. If you do not repent, you remain in your sins and you're lost. And we see in this young boy a repentance 
And it shows up a couple of ways, a couple of notes I want you to see here. I want you to see that his repentance is marked both by a turning away and a turning toward. He's turning away from all the things that got him where he is at that particular moment. He's turning away from all of those things that got him there. He's turning away from the desires, that desire for autonomy, that desire for hedonistic living, that desire for the pursuit of pleasure at any cost, that, that desire to, to, to chart his own course and do whatever he wants to do. He turns from all of those desires. He turns also from the attitudes, as attitudes of resentment and those attitudes of anger and those attitudes of pride and those attitudes of selfishness. He turns away from those things. He turns away not just from the attitudes and the desires, but also the behaviors, from the partying, from the sexual immorality, from the outright godlessness. He turns away from all of that stuff and he turns towards something altogether different. He turns toward everything that his father stood for. And at the heart, repentance is that. It's a turning away from things and it's a turning toward our heavenly father. It's a turning away from all the desires and the attitudes and the behaviors that are in rebellion and it's a turning toward him and everything that he stands for. It's a, it's a, a movement of the heart and the mind and the soul and the whole person to walk away from this stuff that I've previously been pursuing and to pursue him and everything that he stands for. I can remember as a little boy coming to a revival service at, a, uh, at our church at the time, actually here in the city, the predecessor to this church, and hearing a, a pastor preach and share the gospel. And I remember in that uh, occasion, raising my hand and saying I wanted to come to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And, and I, I don't remember all the details of it, but what I do remember is there was a lady in the church uh, at that time whose name was Edna, and somehow I got connected up with Edna, and she took me to another room to, to talk to me more and to make sure I understood what it meant to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And, you know, I can barely remember what I had for lunch yesterday, but I remember this. I remember Edna having me walk across the room and she would yell the word repent and I would turn around and walk the other way. And we did that three or four times. I've never forgotten what repentance is. It's just to turn and walk the other way. It's to turn away from something and turn toward it. And that's what this young man does. He turns toward his father. But his, his repentance is not just a turning away and a turning toward. It involves both what he says and what he does. Repentance is not the same thing as remorse. It's not the same thing as just being sorry for what we've done. There's a lot of people in the world who are sorry for their decisions and sorry for their behaviors and sorry for the pain that they've caused other people. But remorse isn't the same thing as repentance. Repentance always involves a, a degree of remorse, but remorse alone is not repentance. Repentance isn't simply regret either. A lot of people who regret their behaviors and their choices and their decisions, but they haven't repented. Repentance always involves a degree of regret, but regret alone, it isn't repentance. 
Repentance involves what we say and think, but also what we do. And we see that with this boy. He thinks certain things about his own life, and we certainly see elements of remorse and regret, but he doesn't just think those things, and he doesn't just say those things. We're told he picks himself up, and he gets on the road, and he heads back home. And it involves both what he says and what he thinks, and also what he does. A repentance that doesn't sort of show up in action is not repentance. MacArthur and Mayhew say this, biblical repentance is not a mere change of thinking, though it does involve an intellectual acknowledgement of sin and a change of attitude toward it. Neither is it merely shame or sorrow for sin, although genuine repentance always involves an element of remorse. True biblical repentance is also a redirection of the human will, a purposeful decision to forsake all unrighteousness and pursue righteousness instead. Genuine repentance involves the mind, the heart, and the will. All three. And for this son, that's exactly what we see, don't we? It's a 180 degree turn in all of those categories. His thinking is different. His talking is different. His desires are different. And his actions are different. If you were here last week and you remember how we described what sin looks like. Sin looks like Greed and rebellion and lust for pleasure and selfishness and ingratitude and hatred and all of those things. Here we see what repentance looks like, and it's basically the opposite of all of that. What repentance looks like is a changed mind, a clear view of reality. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. All of his thinking has completely turned 180 degrees. He sees clearly what's real. Sin previously had blinded him to this reality. He had believed lies. He had a warped perception of everything and everyone. He had a warped perception of himself. He thought he was smart. He thought he was right. He thought he was entitled. He thought he was so much better than everybody else. He had a warped perception of his father. He thought his father was oppressive and unfair. Thought he was an old dinosaur. Small-minded, too restrictive. He had a warped perception of his own situation in life. In his mind, everything was oppressive and everything was unfair and everything was unfulfilling. And all of that was a lie, but he believed it all. But now he's got a changed mind. He sees everything different, everything as they truly are. He sees himself as a sinner, as a rebel, in the wrong, a fool. He sees his father as good and godly and compassionate and kind. He sees his separation, his, his situation for exactly what it is, desperate, miserable, empty, dead. His whole way of thinking about life and everything else is changed. A commentator by the name of Edwards says this, the first consequences of coming to one's senses is clarity of thought and honest self-appraisal that his present state, in his present state, he's utterly perishing. It is an essential admission for only the lost can be found. His mind has changed. He says, I'm a sinner. I've sinned. That's the moral category to which he now belongs. And he understands that he is a sinner who has sinned. He hasn't just made some mistakes. He hasn't just messed up a little bit. He's a sinner, and he's sinned, and that's it. All sin sort of begins in the mind, doesn't it? Sin begins here. We believe lies, and we convince ourselves that they're true, and we then live out the morals and the ethics that follow what we believe. 
That's where sin begins, and that's where it takes us. Repentance also, though, begins in the mind. It begins with a changed mind. It begins with a rejection of the lies. It begins with an embrace of the truth. And it begins with an affirmation that what God has said is both right and true. And this boy had a changed mind, didn't he? It's the sign of repentance. But isn't it just that? We see humility, don't we? Sign of repentance is humility. Humility looks like Excuse me, repentance looks like humility. Before he was arrogantly demanding his share of the inheritance, he was convinced he knew what was right and what was good. He was convinced that everyone else in his family was out to lunch, but he was better than them all. But that isn't how he thinks anymore, is it? He comes back a humbled man. He's experienced pain and loss and betrayal and disrespect. The world has chewed him up and it's spit him out and it's left him broken, empty, and alone. All that initial bravado is gone. It's gone. Completely gone. He's a humbled man. So humbled that he's willing and would joyfully submit to a life of servitude at his father's farms. Farm. No demands. No expectations of favor or forgiveness. He knows he doesn't deserve any of that. He'll joyfully settle for a life among the day laborers. That's how humble he is. And he says it this way, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's not talking about his legal status there, is he? He's talking about relationally. His message to his dad is, A dad like you deserves a much better son than me. I don't deserve that status in your home. That is a humbled man. It's a far cry from where he was when he left, isn't it? Repentance doesn't just look like humility, though. It looks like accountability. His father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. It looks like an accountability. Heaven here is just a symbolic way for speaking of God. He confesses that first and foremost, his sin is against God, and secondarily, his sin is against his father. And he recognizes in his own heart and in his own mind that he's accountable to both. He left because he didn't want accountability. He didn't think he needed accountability, and he didn't think he, he, he owed that to anybody. And he comes back with a different attitude because he's repented, and repentance looks like accountability. He doesn't make any excuses. He doesn't try to blame anybody else for his sin and the results. He owns full accountability for his sin. He is responsible, nobody else. He has full accountability. He's accountable, nobody else. And he makes very clear that he deserves the consequences. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Those are the consequences. I deserve it, and I understand it. He's got an accountability. I want to make note here, though. In this part of the text, the father is distinguished from God. You hear the the son saying, I sinned before heaven or against heaven, meaning God and you. I only point this out to you because it'll become relevant next week. In this particular statement, we see the father being separated from God, as though in the story they're two different people. Sometimes when someone teaches this story, or maybe you've read or heard this, they, they tell you that the father in the story represents God the father. Well, it's a little challenge to make that application because here the father 
and our Heavenly Father are noted as two different individuals. So who does the Father represent in this parable? Well, it represents Christ. And that's consistent with the lost sheep and the lost coin story that just preceded it. But we'll talk more about that last week. I just want to make that point because we're there in the text. But his repentance looks like humility. It looks like accountability. And it looks like a submission to authority, doesn't it? He, he didn't want to submit to his father's authority. That was part of his rebellion. He didn't want anybody telling him anything to do. He wanted to do whatever he wanted to do. And coming back, his repentance is now built within him a submission to authority. God, I'm under your authority and I'm under God's authority. And I'm in full submission to whatever that looks like. No longer a rebel. And it looks like a set of new desires, doesn't it? He's no longer living for the next pleasure or the next high. He's content to be a slave. All he wants is a life of hard work, being able to make enough bread to survive. And he'll be content with that. He's already seen how sin operates, how it stokes all your sinful desires and promises you all this stuff but delivers none of it. Now all he wants is to go home and be near his family and to have food to eat. That's all he wants. Maybe in the back of his mind, there's this, this distant hope that he can somehow earn back his father's trust, maybe. But all the desires that drove him away are gone, and he's got a whole new set of desires now. And I guess finally, it looks like a plea for mercy, doesn't it? He has a clear understanding that his only hope is mercy. When he ran away, he had this entitlement attitude, didn't he? Like, give me what's mine. Give me what's mine. A third of your estate belongs to me. Give it to me. I'm entitled to have it. I'm entitled to go. I deserve better. I deserve more. And he comes back, a young man saying, unless my father is compassionate and merciful, I have no hope. I don't have anything. I got nothing. My only hope is that he will be compassionate to me, at least to the level that he's compassionate with the day laborers whom I know he gives enough food to. My only hope is that he'll be that merciful with me and that I won't starve to death. And his whole message to his dad is a plea for mercy, is all it is. He doesn't know what he's going to get. He doesn't know what his dad's going to react. He just hopes for mercy. He doesn't deserve forgiveness. He knows that. He doesn't deserve restoration. He doesn't deserve a fresh start. He deserves to be rejected. He deserves to be cast out. He deserves to hear his dad say, I already gave you all that was owed you. I don't owe you one red cent. Get lost. He deserves to hear his dad say, you're the kid who had it all figured out, didn't you? Well, go figure it out. Oh, how he underestimates his dad. His only hope, though, is that the father in whose face he spit would be merciful to him, would have mercy on him. No longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me as a hired servant. It's a cry for mercy. Don't completely reject me the way I completely rejected you. Be merciful. Don't let me starved to death out here. That's what repentance looks like. That's what it's always looked like. And in this story, Jesus paints it in such clear, vivid, 4K imagery that you can't miss it, can you? 
And he does it because he wants the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders, and by the way, you and me, to look at our own lives and ask ourselves the question, have you ever repented? Has there ever come a time in your life when you, when you sat up in the pig pen of your life and you looked around and you said, this is not where it's at? Where you realize that everything that you've pursued in your whole life has been a rebellion against God. And everything that you thought that you knew and everything that you thought you were so smart in and everything that you thought you could sort of connive your way into was all a big illusion. Has there ever been a time when you've humbled yourself and looked yourself in the mirror and said, you know what, I'm really nobody. I'm nothing more than a rebel against my maker. I've run hard the wrong way. And I have no hope apart from his mercy. Has there ever been a time in your life when instead of doing whatever you want, you came to your senses and said, this is a foolish life to live for myself, to live without accountability, to do whatever I want, to reject the authority of God in my life and turned and looked to your heavenly father and said, I don't want to live like that anymore. I want to live under your authority. I want to live in accountability to you. I don't want to live for the things that the world promised me and doesn't, promises me and doesn't deliver. I want to live for your promises because I know you'll deliver. Has there ever been a time when you realized that you were dead in your sins and your transgression, hopelessly lost, and apart from the mercy of God, you have no hope? And express that to him in some way. If that isn't taking place in your life, then you're lost. And you remain in your sins. And a sentence of death remains hanging over your head. And while you might live, and while you might have a nice home and a nice car and a good job and fun things to do on the weekend, there's a day that's going to come when you're going to stop breathing and you're going to stand before your creator and give an account for your life. And unless you repent, you'll die eternally. You'll hear away from me, I never knew you. But the good news of the gospel is there's still time to repent. Like this young man who has gone as far as he's gone, you've gone however far you've gone, but it's never too late to stop and wake up and say, I'm on a fool's errand. My father is where it's at. And I need to turn from all of this stuff that I'm doing and all of this stuff that I'm thinking and I need to go back to him. I need to return to what I know is good and right and true and pure and holy. I need to submit my life to him and his authority and be accountable to him and pursue the things that relate to him. That's where it's at. And just perhaps he'll have mercy on my soul. Let me tell you something, my friend. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you've come from. I don't care what you've done. If Alice Cooper were standing here today, he'd tell you the same thing. Repent. Turn away from whatever it is you're pursuing and go back to your father. Submit to him. And you won't believe the reception you'll get. He's a God who celebrates when his lost people are found. And that's exactly what he'll do if you'll come back. Oh, we'll look at that next week. 
It's enough to make your heart want to explode with joy at what kind of father you have and what kind of reception you'll get if you'll just repent and run back to him. Let's pray. God in heaven, you are glorious and you are amazing. Your mercy is new every day. It's never exhausted. We can never outrun your grace. We can never go too far for too long and allow sin to run too deep that you won't receive us back to yourself when we turn and run to you. Yet, Lord, as we look at this boy, we see ourselves. Oh, boy, do we see ourselves. (laughs) We see it. In a thousand ways, we've done just what this kid did. We've run from you. We've believed the lies of the world. We've pursued the things of the world. We think all of these things, money and power and possessions and prestige and all of that stuff, illicit sex, everything that the world dangles in front of us, we we believe those things are going to bring us joy and pleasure and fulfillment, and none of them deliver ever. They only suck us deeper in. Oh, in each of our lives, Lord, we've done that in a hundred ways that we would never want the person sitting next to us to know. But you know. You know it all. And Lord, I pray for that man and that woman that's in this room this morning who is in that very place of decision, who's beginning to see maybe even for the first time in their life who they are and why they are where they are. It's because they've run away from you. I pray, Lord, that you would turn the light switch of their soul on right now. You'd open their eyes, that they would come to themselves. And that, Lord Jesus, they would see you for who you are, the Son of God, a Savior who came, who died for their sins, who paid the price so they don't have to, and who stands before them with open arms, ready to welcome them home if they'll just turn and come. And I pray And in this room this morning, some would do that very thing. Do your work in us. By your spirit, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.